This is a sermon brought to you by Good News Bible Church, where we believe we should love God, love others, and make disciples. We are located in Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood and invite you to join our family live every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. as we praise and worship with songs and learn about God through the study of the Bible. You can visit our website at goodnewschi.org. That's goodnewschi.org. Let's turn now to hear what the Word of God has for us this week. We have been going through the series of Nehemiah. Does anyone know, you can show me with your hand, with your fingers, how many sermons left we have in Nehemiah? Anyone know? One, that's wrong, okay, good. I saw four, four is correct. We got four more pieces of this McNugget coming out uh, in terms of sermons. We have four left, and then, um, and then we're done. We were very strategic to kind of bring this book. We feel like this book of talking about renewal, talking about how God does it, and how he uses people, how we participate in it, has been very, very powerful. So I pray that it will continually be uh, enjoyment to you all. So I wanted to start today with a little bit of math. Doesn't that sound a little weird? So what I'm gonna, what I'm gonna do, don't worry, it's, uh, it's for all levels. How about that? It's for all levels. Okay, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna show you some numbers on the screen. All you have to do is memorize the numbers. There are several numbers. All you have to do is memorize the numbers. Before we do that, find your elbow partner. Now, most of you have two elbows, so figure out which one's going to be your elbow partner because you're going to tell them uh, your answer, okay? Everybody got an elbow partner? Okay. Some of you all listening to me. Good, good, good. Some of you all by yourself, you're going to talk to yourself, and that'd be okay today. Okay. So what you're going to do is you're going to see these numbers. You're going to memorize them. Don't tell them as you see them. That's not the, what the point is. But you're going to memorize those numbers, and then you're going to tell someone what those numbers are. Are you ready? It's not going to stay on there too long. Are you ready? Okay, you look ready. Okay, tell your elbow partner what you have. <laughs> Okay, let's come back in three, two, one. Did anybody uh, mesmer- mesmerize? memorize all six? Maybe a couple? Okay. Those are the people we want handling our money and life, right? So see who raised their hand. Did anybody get, like one number, I heard someone say, all I saw was eight. All I saw was eight. That's because I just ate too. It wasn't even mad. Okay, so some of you all just saw eight, okay? I'm going to show you the same numbers again, and we're going to go through the process again. Are you ready? So you get a second chance. Here you go. Did that make a difference? Did you get all six numbers that time? Tell your neighbor the numbers. Okay, so that time, how many people got all six numbers? How many of you all could keep going if you needed to? I could give you more than six. I keep going if you want me to, right? All right, some people said, you know, Rick in the back, the money man, he's like, I got this from the get-go, right? Uh, But notice that when we put those commas there and when we put them in a pattern, 
Something different happened in our brain, right? You see, there's something about us seeing and noticing a pattern that actually researchers say get our brains all worked up, almost to the point of being frantic. And our brains are ready to learn and ready to see, and they can predict what's going to happen. And it's a huge type of learning. And I think that as we've been studying the book of Nehemiah, we've been seeing maybe some patterns, but in this, in this sermon alone and in the ones to come, we're going to see a pattern emerge about how God treats his people. Think about that. There's a pattern. And this pattern should get you excited. It should get your brain frantic because you can almost predict who God is based on his attributes. Notice that last week we talked about there was a group of people, the Israelites were together, the wall had been built, and the Levites get up and, and ask the people to worship. And then we have this beautiful song prayer that they begin to, that Ezra begins to read out to them, to be, he begins to say to them. And he started by remembering, and he started uncovering God's pattern of behavior towards the Israelite people. The first thing they talk about is Abram. God chooses Abram. He initiates that relationship. He starts it, and he gives him the name Abraham, which means father of many. We see that God created a covenant, which he himself fulfilled for Abram. That covenant included making the Israelite people a great nation, that Abram would have a great name, and that he would be a great blessing, that the whole world would be blessed through him, that they would have land. Notice the pattern of God's love and mercy and grace towards these people. They also start, they were all together, and they had just finished fasting, and then they start remembering. They're remembering this pattern that just keeps coming of God also doing something very similar with Moses. What did God do? God saw the affliction that his people were in, and he rescues them. He sends Moses as a deliverer, and God conquers the Egyptian army, but before that, he sends all these plagues, which releases the Israelite people from captivity. Then you think about the Red Sea escape, where they literally had like a land bridge in the middle of water. You got walls on the side of water, amazing. Then we have the pillar of cloud and fire that they were able to use in the day and night to determine where they were going. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them statutes and laws. He gives them government. And then he also sustained them physically with bread and water and eventually giving them the land. And they kind of sum up this pattern of God's behavior by saying, you have performed your words. And what that means, they said to the Lord, Lord, you promised this to Abraham and the descendants, and we're here. Now, they're not here in the, in the best situation, but they recognize that God had done everything he said he was going to do. The Israelites will remember everything that God had done. So today, we're going to still be in that prayer. We'll continue that prayer. Remember, it's the longest one that's written out in the Scriptures. The first word we'll, we will cover in this week's sermon, though, is the word but, B-U-T. Now, how many of you all know by patterns of reading, when you see the word but, something's about to, about to change, right? And so now all these great things have been brought up, but now we're going to start this week with that word but. And how many of you all know that not only does God have a pattern of behavior, but the Israelite people and us 
have a pattern of behavior as well. And so today we are going to look into that and ask God to give us the opportunity to see the pattern that these people have recognized and how God and the relationship with his people work. Let's pray. Pray with me. Dear God, thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word yet again. We thank you for the opportunity you give us every day uh, to be able to read your word. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come up here, um, come to church and, and hear a sermon, Lord, to, to gather for a purpose to hear your word. Lord, I pray that your word would, uh, would cut us, would uh, heal us. Lord, I pray that it would just be impactful to each and every one of us. We thank you for how you have chosen to communicate with us and help us to not take that lightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 16 to 17a. This one is actually on the screen as well. The, uh, the underlines are my emphasis. It reads, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. We heard all the things that happened last week, what God had done. But then what's the but? The but is there was a terrible response to God's goodness. There was a terrible response in how God had been so good to them. And notice that I highlighted some things because those are some key words to tell us what was their behavior like. And these words come up over and over. That's why I want to emphasize them so early. First, one of the words that comes up is they acted presumptuously. And that word means that they boiled up with arrogance. So imagine water boiling up and how it just kind of comes out. You know, the vapor comes up. They were boiling up with arrogance. So God had done all this stuff to them. God had done it, but they boiled up in arrogance. It says they stiffened. That means they hardened. So you could think about a hardened heart, hardened behavior. It says they chose to not obey, which means a refusal to listen. You can have a picture of a little kid when you tell them to do something, they look at you and they go like this, right? Not even knowing how to speak, but they know how to do that, right? Uh, says they refused to obey. That means they were unwilling. Says that they were not mindful. That means they actually chose not to recall or remember. You just choose not to recall or remember. That was their behavior. It also says that they appointed a leader. So they designated, they separated a leader for themselves. I want you to notice some though that Ezra and the Levites and the people that are all gathered there, they're remembering this about their forefathers, about their ancestors, and they kept it real. Did you notice that they were very real with what their behavior was? They didn't mince words. They mentioned how they stiffened their necks and refused to obey. They were, you know, that they weren't mindful. And I want to let you out, this, this is a sure sign a spiritual renewal. Not that you just recognize your own faults and sin, but you actually think back to family, to your ancestors, and you think about how there's a collective wrong that's been happening in behavior to God throughout the ages as well. You guys notice that? The people that were gathered right here, did they do all of that stuff personally? 
No, but they still confess that because they realized that they had a connection with their people, with the people who did that. And when the people humbly saw God and saw his goodness and they see his goodness, they can't help but notice their collective sinfulness, especially when it was shown against the brightness and goodness of what God had done for them. And think about it, sin is wrong enough. There's some things that we just kind of know is wrong. Every culture agrees on certain things kind of being wrong. But when you consider how great and amazing God is and how gracious and merciful he had been to them, it even shines out brighter. It stands out brighter and so wrong, right? Think about God's attributes, his grace, his mercy. And you think about their actions. And it's just, it's just such a dichotomy. It's such a big, drastic change. Think about how God is, is humble. He almost, some people call it, he condescends. He comes down and chooses Abram and leads, leads the Israelites out of Egypt. He comes down, he's humble. He lowers himself in a sense. But what did, what did they do? They raised themselves. They boiled up with arrogance. Think about how God is loving and kind, but what did they do? They were stiff and they were selfish. And if this is hitting any of you all, just realize that as I was preparing this sermon, it was not a good time for me. I was, you know, I felt like I was getting stabbed all the time. I was like, yeah, that's kind of me. Yep, it's kind of me. Kind of us, right? God gave them good statutes and commandments to obey, but what did they want to obey? Their own selfish desires. God was their God, but what did they do? They made their own God, and they designated who rules them. So this sin pattern of disobedience is rooted in arrogance. And who does that remind you of? What, what being does that remind you of with the arrogance? You know, some of you all should be thinking about Satan, thinking about Lucifer. And Isaiah 14, 13, 14 talks about this. And see if you see the connection to the pattern of the behavior of the, of the Israelites that they were speaking of. It says, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Isn't that how they, isn't that how they were acting? And that's, that's what we struggle with as well. God blesses us. We're in a comfortable position. And then we start to do our own thing. We start to rise up and swell up and arrogance. So relationships are complicated, and relationship with God can often be complicated as well for us as we struggle with our disobedience to a great God. Turn with me to, we're going to read a big chunk now, verses 17b, so the second part of 17, and we're going to go to 25. It reads, but you are a God ready to forgive. You guys notice how there was a, a but and then the Israelites acted a certain way? And now we have another but. And it talks about how God is going to ask. So how God is going to act, sorry. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, 
nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Ar, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into your hand, into their hand, with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. You guys see that second part of 9-7? But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. What an amazing God. I think that's a Bible verse to memorize, huh? Let's look at this pattern that emerges. If you notice, the first part says that God is gracious and merciful and Israel serves the Lord. But notice that when they start to become filled with all these blessings, what ends up happening? They, come, they become kind of proud. They begin to sin. They begin to forsake God. One of the biggest ways this text shows that is, in, is when they made the golden calf. How many of you all know that story? Moses was away for a while. They began to be unsure if Moses was coming back. And so in the meantime, they pressured Aaron, um, who was their high priest at that time, who was the priest at that time. They pressured him, and they decided that they, they took all of their own gold, and they melted, and then the verse kind of says that out of it came this calf. Now, you think about all the wrong that just went into that, right? Think about how all the things God had done for them, and then they actually created a God that had done what for them? Basically just took their money, took what they, you know, what they brought to it, and it had done nothing for them. And that's the big wrong substitution that happened. But notice that, I want you to notice that throughout the cycle, God himself does not change. He's still going to act in a gracious and merciful way. You guys notice that during this time, he didn't forsake them, and we know that because the pillar was still around. Isn't that amazing? Even as they built this golden calf, the pillar that was guiding them was still there. He still instructed them, and he, failed, he still fed them, and he still gave them drink, even in the midst of them forming this God who wasn't delivering any of that. Forty years he took care of them. Some of you all, when you get asked to babysit, you give them 40 minutes. You say, you need to get this baby right back, especially at night. But God took care of them for 40 years. Throughout all of this, God did not change. And this is the part when I was uh, preparing for this, it just made me really, really uh, appreciative, sad. And I was just thinking about all the times, and I think we can all think about all the times when 
It was like God had done such amazing things. And even in the midst of him doing amazing things, we've committed some horrific sins. We've done some terrible things. It reminds me when I got married, you know, what an amazing day, amazing situation. And then it reminds me about how I've had to go through three bouts of marriage counseling because I didn't know what I was doing. And I was full of sin and pride. And God used that, though. And God kept being gracious and merciful to kind of save me in that situation and to bless us, right? And God does that with each and every one of us. You see, God gave them the promised land. He fulfilled his Abrahamic covenant. Deuteronomy 7.1 spells this out for us too. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. God still gave them the land and helped them to conquer people that were much more powerful than them. And their population grew. They grew in numbers. And Nehemiah 9.25 tells us, and they captured four to five cities and a rich land. They took possession of all of this. And that makes you think about the pattern. God does these amazing things. We sin, but God is still faithful. And I remember that sometimes I think about as a kid growing up in the neighborhood, not too far from here, and I always thought about what if God did not send somebody or send someone who knew and had a relationship with him? To me, when I was in the neighborhood, what if he didn't? You know, what would my life be like? And then, you know, I get a little emotional when I think about that. But then I think about how God did send someone, and I did become a believer at the age of 10. But then I think about how there's times when I act like I'm not a believer at all. And I'm just like, wow, we actually go back. We actually go back and think about our lives and how we have this kind of thing that's going on, this pattern. God is amazing and gracious to us, but still, we blow up in arrogance and we sin against him. And we see this pattern in the Israelite people and we see this pattern in our own lives. Let's look at verses 26 to 31. 26 to 31. It reads, nevertheless, nevertheless, they were disobedient. Nevertheless functions as another but there, right? They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they, suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Even after the great con conquest 
and the land and the fulfillment of the covenant, which he fulfilled himself. What do we see next in the cycle? That God had to punish them. He had to punish them in their sin. And when you hear the word punish, a lot of us don't think that punish goes with the attribute of being gracious and merciful. But to be honest, God is who God is. He's always going to remain the same. He is immutable. He was still being gracious and merciful in the way that they were punished. Do you notice that they were taken over? They were taken over. They were conquered. Israel suffered. And when God had Israel suffer, what did Israel begin to do? What do we do when we suffer and we're struggling? What do we do? We pray out. We cry out. All of a sudden, we have no problem with a good prayer life. <laughs> right? So God gave them over to some other countries to be conquered. And when they were conquered, and when these enemies ruled over them, they cried out. And what did God give them? It says he gave them saviors. He gave them deliverers. Sometimes it was seen in Judges. Uh, different types of judges. If you read the book of Judges, you see this cycle played out even more. Uh, sometimes he gave them the prophets who spoke through God's spirit to them to warn them, to call them back, to bring them back together. See, God knew what he was doing by handing them over. God knows what he's doing when, when he hands them over to other people. God knows that they're going to reach a desperation point and realize that there's no other hope in this world except God, and they come back to him. So God was still steadfast, and he's very gracious in his love, even through that cycle. And notice how it mentions in there that it says, you heard from heaven. You gave them deliverers. So God, who's separate from what's going on in a sense, he's not separate. He hears. He's hearing these cries. He's willing to act upon them. And God turns God's people eventually, as God listens and sends these deliverers, God's people turn back to him. And how many times did God deliver them? We kind of see this pattern over and over, right? He's consistent. He continually delivers them. And I know some of you all say, three strikes, you're out. Some of you all a little bit stricter. You said, two strikes, you're out. And some of you all have the one rule. I said it already. Right? Some of you are those parents or, or those friends. One strike, one strike you're out. Um, but we see God in his mercy and his grace. He continually, he continually provides that to them. Isn't that amazing? I don't even know if we could count how many strikes. Verse 29 tells us that God warns them to follow the law. But again, they acted errantly arrogantly and rebelliously again. In verse 30, it talks about how this went on for many years. And guys, God could have made an end to them. God could have ended this, but he did not because of his promises and his choice to be the God that he is. He's the God that he is, and he keeps that. Does everyone see themselves in this cycle? Do you see your relationship with God kind of mirror this? God sends them deliverance. He's gracious to them. He's merciful. We sin. We become proud. God gives us over to what's going on. Sometimes there's punishment, right? Someone is able to come and help us see our sin. 
So then we cry out to God, then God sends deliverance, and it just kind of goes again and again, doesn't it? And I just believe that it tells us so much about our God when we go through this cycle and he's continue, continually acting the way that he does. It's just amazing. Let's look at the last part, verses 32 to 38. And this kind of changes the narrative a little here. It says, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you, that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. That's a great comparison there. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of, all, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Do you guys notice where they are in the cycle right now? They're, they're crying out. They are, not, they are not where they should be. You know, they're exiles. They are under Persian rule. They were not an independent nation at this time. So this is them crying out. They had to pay taxes. They were oppressed. Notice that this is signs of a, of a true confession. And usually a true confession is when we realize two things. We realize how God is right in what he's been doing and how we have been wrong. So we admit with God that what you say and how you act, Lord, in all this situation has been correct. And we, Lord, have been incorrect in our behavior. We have been wrong. That's a really good confession. A lot of us, even when we confess, I don't know if you guys struggle with this, but I do. Sometimes we confess and we just say, Lord, I, I confess my sin. But notice that a lot of the confession in here were very specific. You guys know that? So when you sin, you agree with God that that action that you just took is wrong. And then you also agree that God is right in his statutes and what he gives us as a true law. They say, these people say collectively that God is just in all that has happened to them. They're not just thinking about themselves. They're thinking about their history. They're thinking about their people. And this gives a good description of what corporate confession is like. I don't know if you guys know what corporate confession is. That means we confess as a group what's been going on, and they do that. They are exemplifying this. Here's a quote that I really felt was real powerful and speaks to what's been going on here. It is a tremendous moment in a Christian's life when they can honestly look up into the face of God and say, yes, Lord, you are right, 
and I am wrong, when they stop arguing with God and drops their controversy, they say, Lord, yes, I've got what I deserved in this situation. You are right. I am wrong. That is the thing for which God has been working in your life and mine from the very moment of our conversion. That idea that we begin to understand that God is right and true and that we are, we are wrong. It's a rough pattern that we're in though, right? <laughs> Just kind of think about it. It's just a really rough one. So how does this, uh, how does this apply to, what, about, to us? And I do really mean us this time, not just each one of us, but us. First, I want to talk about confession. I think about the main sin that kind of is the one that covers everything that's been going on, and I'm hearing pride or acting arrogantly, right? So here are some questions we can ask about our behavior and your individual behavior as well. See, pride is a deep satisfaction or pleasure from your own achievements. So are you attributing things to yourself that should not be attributed to you? Are we attributing things to ourselves as a collective body here that, are, that should be attributed to God? And what does pride kind of show? How does it show its face? What are the little elements of it? One is disobedience, refusal to obey authority. You know, I've only been pastor three months, but I, uh, I really, I'm really thinking about when I wasn't the pastor and I'm thinking about my behavior before and after, and I'm just like, wow. There were times when I felt like I just knew what needed to be done and I was gonna do it no matter what people said. I didn't really respect the authority like I should have. Definitely had to make some phone calls. How about boastfulness, showing excessive pride? as if God didn't do it all along, right? What's going on with the hypocrisy in your life? That's a symbol of pride. Hypocrisy is you don't even match up to your own standards, but you put them out on someone else. Do we do that collectively as a church? You know, I heard someone say uh, they, got a, they got an application for someone who wanted to be a missionary in another country. And the first question that the person, uh, the interviewer asked the person being interviewed is they said, tell me how you have been a missionary in where you live now. And the person was like, what? Like, tell me how you've been a missionary in your current life. And they said, well, you know, I've been, I've been kind of training for it. I'm going to be a missionary when I go there. And then the person said, well, this interview's over. If you haven't been a missionary here, I don't know if I want you to be a missionary over there. And it's, it's nice what the person wants to do. Is, I feel like it's a godly motive. But a lot of times, the things that we expect of others and our church as a whole are the very things that we ourselves are struggling with. And we need to have that less arrogant attitude and say, how can I add to us collectively following God in this? Nehemiah is for us too, guys. It has some great things to glean. And one more thing I wanted to mention is sometimes when we're trying to avoid sin, we're just thinking about the sins and we try to like get away. But one of the best ways to avoid sin is to think about its opposite and run towards that. Which, what's the opposite of pride? Humility. 
So humility is a modest view of your own importance. You got to have a modest view of your own importance, you know, collectively, individually, at your job, when you come here, you know, God can use any of us. I want to close with this. After brokenness of heart, after reflection on God's goodness, after recognition of their own sinfulness, they began to be renewed in their obedience. So confession leads to a renewal of our obedience. Confession leads to a renewal in our obedience. So I ask you guys, not individually, but collectively, what are some things that Good News Bible Church, our body here, our membership, our people that are part of our church family here, what are some things that we need to confess? What are some things that God has enabled us to do, but we've acted arrogantly and haven't done those things? And I think about, uh, I think about what those things are, and I think that's what the elders and pastors, that's what we're trying to really focus on, becoming a church that's even more and more loving towards God, that's becoming even more and more loving towards others. This is kind of, this is kind of rough, but you know, if you ask a lot of people, other Christians in, the, in, in Chicago about Good News Bible Church, we have a reputation. We have a lot of good reputation. But you guys want to know what's the number one thing they say is our, for, in terms of our bad reputation? They say this church is ingrown. That's what people say. This church is ingrown. It's like the family is so tight that it doesn't reach out. And that may be something we need to apologize for collectively. Not blame it on Pastor Ralph or Carrie or any of the pastors now, but collectively. Why is this church ingrown? You know, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true, but that's just what people say. That's, that's kind of like what's being said. And we have to think about that and examine our hearts. And have we acted arrogantly? Or are we willing to say, maybe this is something that, that we need to take a look at. Tonight, we're going to have a prayer meeting. Uh, tonight's prayer meeting is at 5.30 downstairs. You all are welcome to come. Prayer meeting is a little bit more of an open space. You can walk around. We have pillows for kneeling. There's rooms you can go talk to people one-on-one if you need to be prayed for, things like that. Worship's a little bit more loose. But in this prayer meeting, one thing we want to talk about and pray about is about kids and our kids' ministries. But that's something that I feel like maybe God wants to challenge us with to confess as well. How have we done with our children? You know, if we're faithful with the, with the few we have now, God will give us more. And so we want to, I want to challenge you all to collectively think about that confession. Collectively think about maybe attending the prayer meeting as an act towards crying out to God and saying, Lord, we need you to grow our church. We need you to help us to be outreach-minded. How many of you all know that most people come to the Lord before the age of 18? And a lot of times churches don't have a ministry towards children until they're already wayward. <laughs> then we want to come up with the ministry to get them back. But I want us to pray as a group and as a family to ask God to save us from this, that we will be a church that is reaching out and we will be a church that focuses on the, the, the young hearts that we get to mold. Let's pray.
This has been a presentation of Good News Bible Church, where we equip people to love God, love others, and make disciples. To help support our mission, please visit our online giving portal through our website at www.goodnewsshy.org.